0: Good morning. This is attorney Vince Davis. It's December the 24th, 2017. You're on with Get Your Kids Back Now and Fight CPS. This show is dedicated to keeping families together and to fighting the tyranny of CPS and DCFS social workers. A secondary purpose of this show is to educate parents and relatives or to at least show them where to get the necessary information for their fight. The final purpose of this show is to remind the people that change can be effectuated at the ballot box, at the state and federal levels. Let us unite, vote, and elect those who will make the necessary changes. Good morning, everyone. I have a special guest, a very special guest, uh, with me this morning. Uh, Her name is Attorney Rachel Raymond. Good morning, Rachel. Good
1: morning, Mr. Davis. Oh,
0: Rachel, please, please call me Vince. Okay. Rachel. Good
1: tell, morning, Vince. Rachel, <laughs> tell
0: our, Rachel, tell our audience a little bit about yourself and about your background.
1: Um, I am, I'm, I've been an attorney since uh, 2010, and I took a job as a court-appointed attorney in Los Angeles. Um, in the children's court for, um, to represent parents. I, I was appointed to represent parents. And I did that for about a year, and I became frustrated <laughs> and, uh, with the situation and the amount of cases that each of us were assigned. And I um, went out on my own, and I've been representing parents uh, ever since.
0: Rachel, what uh, made you frustrated at your job as a uh, court appointed attorney?
1: Well, I, well, first of all, the amount of cases that were assigned to us over 200 cases and it didn't matter how much time one has in the day and one spent towards, you know, trying to prepare for cases, you couldn't prepare adequately. In the way that you needed to prepare to help these parents get their children back, it was impossible. And I would spend night after night trying to be ready for to help these parents, and it was just absolutely impossible. Um, so the type of job that I want to do and the, the help that I want to provide my clients, I couldn't do it. It didn't. I mean, I would not sleep nights, and I still couldn't do it. It, it was very frustrating.
0: Well, Rachel and I currently work together on uh, juvenile dependency cases representing parents. And the reason why I asked Rachel to come on this uh, Saturday, the day before Christmas, is I wanted her to share with the audience about a case, and we won't mention the client's name, but about a case that we just did or that Rachel just won along with another attorney um, who we sometimes work with. Nicole Williams, out of Orange County. Um, you and Nicole represented a mother um, who was in the armed services, who was uh, accused of some heinous uh, child abuse. Rachel, why don't you tell us about that case first? Tell us what the mother was accused of.
1: The mother was acu- what, the mother was accused of um, well. the the initial the the allegation was that uh the, the 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 baby was shaken to the point where the injuries were so severe that the baby was uh airlifted from an on-base hospital to a children's hospital that specializes in in um abusive head trauma and uh the the the, the authorities or or the medical personnel couldn't identify who the perpetrator was because the mother had dropped off her child at daycare. And so, so the uh, CPS got involved when they were called by the hospital staff and they started an investigation along with people, uh, certain authorities on the military base investigated as well. And, the department filed an uh, allegation against mother and father um, regarding uh, the injuries that the baby had. Uh, so that's kind of basically what what it was, what the allegations were.
0: Well, t- tell us about the injuries the baby had.
1: The baby had... Um, suffered, uh, subdural hematomas, which means, uh, there was injuries to the brain such that the brain was, uh, bleeding and, and the bleeding caused swelling of the brain, which caused the baby to, uh, suffer seizures. And, um, I, I don't know all the specifics. I don't want to claim to be a medical person, but, but, um, that this kind of trauma is is so severe that um a lot of children don't necessarily make it or they suffer for the rest of their lives having some sort of brain damage or something because of those types of injuries and then and um the baby also suffered um injuries to the spine um muscle injuries ligament injuries all i mean Usually in in other shaken, uh, what they call them, you know, sort of in in dependency law or dependency court, uh, these shaken baby cases, a lot of times they seem to be misdiagnosed. But in this case, all the experts agreed that this was truly a shaken baby case. The injuries pointed towards that. It was it was pretty clear. And um, and but. Our issue was basically the timeline and what the evidence, the evidence that we had, and the evidence that was presented by the department, usually two completely different things. Although the department is required to present all evidence, even exculpatory evidence, however, a lot of times they seem to leave out the exculpatory evidence and they presented a story that was skewed and pointed towards our client and it so it took a lot of it was really important to get as much discovery as we could as much you know as as many of the hospital records as many of the social workers uh note notes and um different And then also the the babysitters, uh, because she was certified by the base in order to provide child care, we needed to get her file, her human resources file from the base as well so we could get a complete picture because you can never trust that the complete picture is ever presented by the department, even though they are required to present all evidence.
0: When you um, first took on this case, you and I talked about it, and to be honest with you, Rachel, I, I I looked at this case and I thought to myself, I'm not sure this is a case we can win. And when I told you that, what did you think?
1: I thought, I mean, I can, I thought I can understand why you would think that, and I can because we're presented with a picture that looks unwinnable. I mean, we were presented a picture by the department and the evidence and in the reports that looked, they, it, you were correct in, in assuming that it looked unwinnable. But I thought, just wait, just wait, hold on. Let me get all this evidence and let's look at everything and talk to everybody that is willing to talk to us. And let's get a complete picture before we make a decision about whether or not this case is winnable and whether or not our client, you know, has a shot here at at proving her innocence, basically.
0: You know, not only did I think the case was unwinnable, but a colleague of mine who uh, uh, I won't mention his name, he called me several times and told me, another attorney, Uh, not with our office, and told me what he thought about this case and how he thought the case was definitely unwinnable. And um, I had my concerns. But I got from you every time that I spoke to you the sense that um, you never said this, but Vince, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. And I got (laughs) the feeling that you knew more about this case, uh, and you had a gut-level feeling about this case and about this client that she was truly innocent. So, um, you know, you did what you do best, and that is you defended this lady. And um, tell us about the trial. Tell us what happened.
1: Well, let me just add a little something that I think is, is so important that I think a lot of people or a lot of attorneys, especially in this area of law, and especially if you're court-appointed, court you have a tendency to, you know, make a decision prior to even talking to your client, and really sort of immersing yourself in their story and their what. See, what I did was I spent a lot of time talking with our client. I went with her on the base. I went with her by the babysitter's house I went with her and spoke or attempted to speak to the on-base authorities and was basically you know had the door closed on my face basically but I I just I'm one of those attorneys who I want to leave no stone unturned before we can make a decision like that because you know this this woman you know was a was, and and she was a young woman, yes, she's married to another um, uh, military person and, you know, they live on base and, you know, she just needed, she deserved to be heard, she deserved to be listened to, and she deserved to have somebody not make up their mind prior to investigating and looking at all the evidence, because that's my job, my job is to work for this woman, and my job is to work for each person that I work for um, uh, on each case. And I have to, it's so important to listen to what my clients have to say. Because a lot of times you discover, you know, the, the sort of the the key or the answer to, to how to go forward in this case in the little details that you 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 just you you would almost think would be unimportant, and so prior to starting this trial, I really immersed myself in in the the details of this case and finding out uh, facts and and getting information and going and sitting with this woman in her home, going and sitting you know driving around with this woman on the base, going to the hospital hospitals where the baby had been taken, All the, the truth of the case sort of came out by doing all of that. And if you can't or you're not willing to take the time to do that or you don't listen, then I just don't see how you can adequately, you know, go forward and help this mom, you know, in the appropriate manner. So what happened at the trial? So I have I have to say it's 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 nerve-wracking to go to trial in dependency court especially. I mean it's nerve-wracking period, but you know the the trial in dependency court because there's so many cases that are filed the, the judges and the other lawyers, they, they don't like it when you slow down their day. They don't like it when you take a, a case to trial because, you know, you're slowing down their calendar and you're getting in the way of their, the way that they function. And, um, so you're already starting sort of with, with this like air of, of annoyance by, you know, the other attorneys and, and the court, but it's regardless of that, it, it, I was going to, I knew that I needed to do this. I knew that the facts pointed towards my client not having hurt her child. And so basically We had to continue the trial a few times, and I know that was frustrating for my client, but it was absolutely necessary in order to get all this evidence because without the evidence, you know, we wouldn't have been successful. So, you know, I can understand that parents want to hurry up and go forward because they know their, you know, their innocence or, you know, in this case, she knew her innocence, but we needed to be able to show the court that that was the case. So... We had to continue it a few times, and and it, it really it, it frustrated my client, our client. But um, then uh, when we we started the the case, the the we we had subpoena the daycare provider, and she was the first person to take the stand, and um, she immediately pled the fifth to every single question asked. She pled the fifth. So I think that was pretty telling right off the bat. Well, Well, tell our listeners what that means. Well, basically when asked any questions about the case or what happened, um, that day when the baby was injured, she basically asserted her fifth amendment right not to incriminate herself meaning she was not going to answer any questions that would make her culpable or point towards her having caused the injury rather than our client. So she basically refused to answer any questions. Now
0: she appeared in court with an attorney, correct?
1: She appeared in court with an attorney. That's correct. And in fact, when we subpoenaed her, um, Um, An investigator um, that works with us, uh, Amy, she worked diligently to serve this woman a subpoena. And in fact, she tried, she attempted to just talk to her about what happened. Hey, you know, give me the story. What happened? And even at that point, she was telling my investigator that she has an attorney and she's already been cleared and she can't talk about it. And so then my investigator goes, "Well, okay, I understand. in that case, here, here's a subpoena, and her she you know her mouth dropped open, and her eyes practically popped out of her head and she she got very nervous and and right off the bat, it was clear that something wasn't right by her reaction and um and so when she came when she came, it was, we kind of knew she was going to plead the fifth because her attorney was contacting me, trying to get me to agree to not force her to go to court. And as you know, Vince, I called and spoke to you about that because I wasn't, I mean, I I felt, you know, my gut was telling me, well, let's have her come to court and, you know, basically go ahead and say she's unwilling to, to answer any questions, you know, in open court. But You know, I wasn't sure if we wanted to do that, and I needed to discuss that with you, and I wanted you to, you know, because the attorney, her attorney was trying to get me to agree to not allow, to not make her come to court, so I really wanted to discuss that with you. But, um, and, and you and I agreed that we, she needs to come to court and go ahead and, you know, let the court know that she's unwilling to answer any questions. And that's what happened and i think that was the first witness and that was just just the bat you know it was a great way to start that trial with her being unwilling to answer any of those questions
0: Go ahead. when she was unwilling to answer questions and she pled the fifth <clears throat> how did
1: the trial judge react hmm. uh what first what i mean i think he he realized um because you know, she had shown up with uh, her attorney, and I think, you know, prior to going on the record and starting that, her attorney let the court know that she would be pleading the fifth. We didn't know if she would plead the fifth to every single question or not. So basically, the county puts on their case first, the county put her, and then I realized later that the county had subpoenaed her as well, which I didn't know that. Um, So she took the stand, and, um, and then I believe the county asked a couple questions and then it was our turn to ask questions and um my colleague Nicole she started she started asking questions and every single question she asked she read that that uh, read that she will plead the fifth to each it was like a, a canned statement that she replied to every single question to the point where then the court basically said well you know hold on you know and asked the witness are you going to basically assert your fifth amendment right to every single question by every single attorney and then her attorney chimed in and said oh yes she will be answered she will be pleading the fifth to every single question except a question that asked her to her name or you know you know those the basics you know stats about her so then it went to the next but the court asked so then we didn't even ask all our questions because the court you know, just basically said, oh, she's going to plead the fifth every single question. So then the next attorney, father's attorney, asked a couple questions, and she pled the fifth. And then minors counsel didn't even ask a question because, well, you know, she was just going to plead the fifth, and then that was it. And she left, and she left for that day, and that was the first, that was, she was the first witness, and that was the first day of trial. And then we went on to, the next witness, which, which was the um, the, uh, the investigative social worker, who took the stand, and I asked I, I asked that que- that witness questions regarding the inconsistencies in the reports that were provided to the court and the notes that I had subpoenaed that you know, were more detailed and had, the notes seem to be more um, more d- driven by facts than the report. You know, there's no, then in the notes you get just basic, well, in this case, basic facts that uh, sort of laid out a more complete picture, whereas the report was, a, you know, had that, was sort of skewed towards, mom. So the facts that weren't helpful towards the mother in the investigative notes were not present in the reports that were turned into the court. So I focused on those in my questions um, regarding uh, that, I, that I asked the uh, investigative social worker.
0: At this point in the trial, the social worker is against our client, correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, yes, but the social worker was, the social worker seemed to be, I mean, just because I, what was so interesting in in this case and in this county, uh, unlike L.A. County, but in this county, I was able to speak to the social worker without the attorney present. In fact, when I first started this case, I was used to LA County where all the social workers refused to talk to, you know, the parents attorney. But here I went up to the County council and said, Oh, I, I requested some discovery. I want to know if you can ask your client, if they've, you know, can they please provide that or are they in the process of getting that together? And he said, Oh, you can ask her yourself, go ahead and talk to her. I was like, what? I was shocked. So I spent time speaking with this social worker you know, just like one human to another, you know, sort of laying out these facts and just saying that this is—I'm not seeing what you're seeing, or at least I'm not seeing what you're presenting to the court. And she didn't really argue against that with me. I mean, we—she seemed to speak pretty openly to me, and and it was a different experience, and I think that was a helpful experience, and I think that should always be the experience because. You know, I mean, social workers have the ability to talk to the parents, um, our clients, freely without us being present. However, most of the time, we're unable to talk to the social worker without their attorney being present. I mean, right off the bat, that's, you know, obviously problematic and skewed, you know, skewed against our clients, skewed against the parents, you know. So it was a different well, experience in, in time, that way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah? At this point in time... Was the minor's attorney against our client?
1: Yes, and that's not surprising in dependency court. I quite often find that the minor's attorney almost seems to be at least, you know, as always in agreement with the department, and sometimes they seem to even go a step further. However, it's always interesting that I mean, in this case, their client is a baby, so obviously the baby can't, you know, talk with their attorney, but, you know, they they don't even go and visit the baby or their client. They haven't spent any time with their client, yet they've made up their mind about what happened in this case, and this minor's counsel had made up her mind that it was, you know, mother that had caused these injuries, and... The entire trial would not sway from that, regardless of what the facts were, regardless of what was being presented. All she did was ask questions to different um, witnesses that we had on the stand, trying to prove a certain, you know, prove that the, that our client um, had caused these injuries. It wasn't like a fact-finding questioning. It was it was trying to prove her. What, what she had made up her mind about already. And, and I just, it was so telling. It wasn't surprising, but it was frustrating. And I know even father's counsel was frustrated at that because it was almost as if the minor's counsel was arguing the hardest against our client.
0: This is, were there any other witnesses that testified?
1: Yes, and I think that this is an important, see, and a lot of times in in dependency cases when we set a case for trial, the court, you know, automatically puts the dependency investigator social worker on on call to be present. And this dependency investigator, they investigate the allegations, but they are not the first social worker on the scene. They are not the social worker that interviewed the parents, interviewed other parties involved. It is the ER, the Emergency Response Social Worker, that is the one that first investigates and first decides whether or not to file a case. So, They're obviously they're absolutely vital to have present at a trial yet they're sort of left out and unless you specifically ask for that that emergency response social worker you're not going to have them so you have somebody who's come into the case long after the case has been filed you know who wasn't the one who first interviewed the parents who wasn't the one who first interviewed the babysitter and in this case getting those notes and seeing you know and and Realizing that the first social worker that that interviewed the babysitter um, was the ER social worker, and we needed that social worker present because in that social worker's notes was exculpatory evidence. Like with on the first page of the subpoenaed documents, literally there was vital information to point towards our client's innocence that never would have been brought to light if we hadn't have gotten those documents and hadn't um, subpoenaed this social worker, uh, to court.
0: And did the, did the county present any expert medical evidence?
1: Well, the county attached portions of the, um, the medical uh, records to the detention report. And that's the first report that's filed by um, the department when they decide to file a case against um, a parent and the, the, you know, they were selective and they weren't complete. Believe me, because there was almost, you know, when I subpoenaed the medical records, there was, you know, almost 20,000 pages and what was attached to the detention report was like maybe 15 pages um but uh so we i know that the um county put the doctor who saw the um baby the second day after the injury um on a call we hired um our own expert um who we provided the massive amount the entire medical record the medical record the entire medical record for the child the entire medical record for the mother so that our expert could get a complete picture of the baby, the baby's history, the mother, the mother's history, so that they can make an informed decision about what could have possibly happened here. And um, so we had that, we had our expert on and our expert um, took the statement, well, it, it appeared by phone um, and we, you know inquired as to what his findings were when he reviewed the records and um, he agreed it, it was an interesting it, it was an interesting case because both our doctor and the county's doctor both of them agreed that this was um, abusive trauma that this child had suffered and at first, even our experts said, I don't know if you if you want me to take the stand because I this doesn't look like an accidental injury at all. I mean, I can't I don't see that. And I said and, and it was interesting because my co-counsel said, I don't know. I mean, maybe we have to rethink this. Maybe Vince was right. Maybe that other attorney that talked to Vince was right. Maybe, you know, we need to talk about accepting a deal or something here. And I said, just wait. Wait a minute, because yes, he's got all the medical records, but he doesn't have all the facts. And when I presented the social worker's notes to this doctor, he said, Now, wait a minute, this changes things as to, you know, pointing towards who could have possibly inflicted these injuries, or at least uh, it could point towards a timeline as to our, our client not really fitting into that timeline. So, you know, you have to take all these, it's like a puzzle and you you get all this, these different bits of, of discovery and evidence and you have to put it together to get a complete picture. You just, you can't keep all the pieces separate because everything plays in, in into each other. Yes. Yes.
0: Rachel, you just mentioned something that's a- you just mentioned something that's very very important and i want our listeners to understand this so if they ever have this problem that they can help their attorney or their court appointed attorney in, in developing a defense you said that the expert reviewed the medical records and things weren't looking good for us till you provided the social worker's reports to the experts that contained additional facts not medical evidence but additional facts that changed the i guess picture in terms of what our medical expert had to say is that correct
1: yeah that that's correct <clears throat> yes it is and it didn't what well, it didn't change his medical opinion as to what occurred, how the injury occurred, but it changed, it gave him more of an accurate storyline because, you know, the facts that that weren't in the medical record but, you know, were sort of circum- uh, outside of the medical record but vital, you know, created a, a, a almost a timeline as to how or who or when these injuries could have possibly occurred so that the fact that, that when you have, you know, the mother, you know, telling, you know, when she was interviewed by the first social worker, the emergency response social worker, she gave him a story of the facts from her perspective. And then that ER social worker spoke to the babysitter that same day And she presented a story. And what's interesting to point out is that those stories lined up from the, you know, in in the sense, uh, from the very, you know, the, the, the beginning. Such that the babysitter and the mother are both saying when mother dropped off the baby, the baby appeared normal. Now, that's just one little sentence, one little line that maybe somebody could skip through really quick and not notice. But in this case, it was vital because how can a baby appear normal and then six hours later be flown to, you know, be medevaced to uh, a hospital because the baby is seizing and the baby is basically on, you know, not looking like it's not going to make it. So clearly that fact. That one sentence was vital in this case. And that, we would not have had that evidence had we not subpoenaed those records. So you always, I always request the social workers' logs, delivered service logs, or in L.A. County, a lot of times they call them the Title 20s. You want them from first contact. You want those notes no matter what. And you always request those, and I always request those.
0: So for our listeners, if you're involved in a case of abuse and you're being charged with abuse, what Rachel is talking about, you have to make sure um, that you speak to your attorney uh, about the importance of getting those delivered service logs in Title 20s through informal discovery. Um, There's something in the law that requires uh, the social workers to provide you that information, but only if you ask for it. And in this case, Rachel was painstakingly gathering information, and she asked for it. So Rachel, tell our listeners what happened at the trial with our doctor's testimony.
1: So our doctor... So we were asking... um, We basically asked our doctor questions and we took what the babysitter had stated, you know, the different symptoms that the babysitter reported, and we went through those with the doctor and we talked about, you know, when a baby or a child suffers, you know, um, subdural hematomas or this kind of injury, how long does it pre- take to present symptoms um Present these symptoms such that you can sort of try to pinpoint a timeline as to when this possibly could have occurred. And it was interesting because as we're we're asking questions and we're going through, you know, the babysitter's statements as to, okay, you know, the baby couldn't keep its head up. Okay, then uh, the baby she attempted to feed the baby. The baby drank a bottle and then the baby. Uh, projectile vomited, and and you think, okay, that's just another symptom. But when we asked the doctor that question, he said, you know, when the, the that's usually a a indicator of the the brain swelling to a point where, okay, now the serious that's sort of a, a catalyst or, or or a marker as to the brain having swelled to, to a a certain degree where the, 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 you know, the seizing might start or, you know, you can't get around that. And so what came out on the stand was that we asked him about the projectile vomiting and he said, you know, that would be within, that should occur within two to four hours of the injury because, you know, and then he brought up an issue about the severity and the fact that, that is a sign of the severity of the injury, and the more severe, the shorter the timeline. So this is literally coming out, you know, as we're asking him questions on the stand, and then Father's Counsel took over and started asking more questions, and then uh, I believe Minor's Counsel asked a few questions, but what was interesting is then the judge uh, had some questions, and the judge started asking um, our expert questions, and our expert is a a uh, well-known expert in this um, area, and he's a, a pediatric orthopedist. So this judge was asking questions not about the subdural hematoma, and but about the injuries in the spine and about whether or not a person would or the baby would, would feel pain when these injuries occurred. And would that, would it be obvious that this child was in pain? And he, the judge elicited that there's no way around the baby, not being in pain when these injuries occurred. And, and it was interesting and people, and I know after the first day of trial, I'm going, I was thinking, what is he getting at? What is he getting at? You know, and I was trying to sort of wrap my head around that and I called and spoke to the expert about that. And I, and I, was asking, what do you think he's getting at there? And, and it was, he said, you know, he's basically wanting to know is, is, won't it be clear that this child was in pain? There's no way this mother could have dropped off this baby without, and it be, and the baby appear normal with what, with what these, what, with the injuries that this baby had, had um incurred. <clears throat> so, so on the second day of trial, when the, depart, when the county called the, the doctor that saw the baby um, the second day after the injury, the judge asked the doctor the same questions, and the, that doctor didn't really know how to answer them. It was it was interesting, um, and it was vital because in the judge's ruling, he went through in detail why he was asking those questions. And how he found our expert to be more credible because he's a pediatric orthopedist. You know, he studied, he, that's his specialty, bones, you know, basically. And that was his questions were regarding the injuries that the child suffered in the spine and, and the, the torn ligaments or the, and the spaces between the spine. And how that baby would have been exhibiting signs of pain. I mean, the baby would have been crying, you know, et cetera, et cetera.
0: So what happened on the second day?
1: Well, I received prior to the second, in between the first and the second day, I received an email from the County saying that they're going to be recalling the babysitter. And I'm going, what's going on with that? You know, did they get some sort of deal or something where they're now the babysitter's going to talk or, you know, what's going on? I was a bit nervous and, so my Amy, my investigator, she uh, in the email that the, the county said that he had spoken to the DA and he was kind of vague, but he was talking about immunity and for the babysitter. So my investigator called up the DA and said, you know, did you promise immunity for this babysitter? What's going on? And, and the DA was like, I don't, you know, I don't even have standing to even offer that, let alone, you know promise anything. I mean, that, that's not correct. So obviously it was important to follow up and make some inquiries um, between the first and the second day when I received that email so I could get a picture of what what is this guy planning to do? You know, is suddenly this babysitter going to start telling a story, you know, that is going to make our client look bad? You know, what is going on? we show up and there's the babysitter again on the second day of trial. And the judge, you know, the County brings up that he had spoken to the DA about immunity. And, and then he, the judge looked at me and asked me whether, you know, do I have anything to say? And I said, well, you know, my investigator spoke to the DA and it's my understanding that the DA doesn't have any standing to even offer that. So, I'm not sure how immunity can even be a, at an, an an issue and then you know it went the judge decided that he's not in a position to give this person immunity because she's you know he can't basically make it so that she can say whatever she wants to say up there on the stand and and even say things that would be would be clear that it would point to maybe you know she caused this injury yet He's already offered her immunity. So he did not agree to offer her immunity. And once again, she, well, she didn't even get up there. Basically the judge asked her attorney, is she going to plead the fifth? And the attorney said, yes, she will be pleading the fifth again. He said, well, there's no point in her taking the stand again. And he excused her. And then we, and then the County called the doctor um, that had seen the baby um, right after the injuries occurred. And she took the stand and then, the county asked her, you know, several questions basically trying to take what our experts said and and you know undo it to a certain degree and this doctor couldn't really undo it. I mean, they were almost it was it was it was pretty incredible because this doctor you know wouldn't I don't know how to say it other than this doctor couldn't really disagree with our expert so she, he asked questions and then it was our turn to ask questions and we asked her um, several questions and I, I wanted to really point towards the severity of the injury so that we can show that the timeline is, is a really a rather short one and then I also asked this doctor about you know somebody when an in, when this type of injury occurs and if even if the story that the babysitter d- decided to tell you know leaving out that when the baby was dropped off the baby appeared normal leaving she left that out after her first interview that that statement never appeared again and um if she said uh i asked her d- do you find it concerning that this doctor i mean that this babysitter had this baby at her home for six hours saying, and she's saying that this baby was gasping for air, couldn't hold its head up, um, was, you know, listless and lethargic. She waited six hours to call mother. Six hours. There's a problem with that because this babysitter who is certified by the base is required to report any kind of illness parent within an hour and the reason we know that is because we subpoenaed the 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 requirements to become certified on a military base so we knew the rules so there's another like something that you might not think of but that is was vital is to show that you know see that's another one of those pieces of the puzzle when you put it all together it presents a more honest picture of what's going on. And so, yes, that doctor said that is really concerning. And she said not only as a doctor, but as a parent, that is concerning that this person would wait six hours while this baby can't, you know, supposedly can't breathe, can't hold its head up, you know, et cetera. So it was important to to get the doctor's opinion regarding the babysitter's reaction to these these symptoms, and it was important to get the doctor's opinion as to mother's reaction to when she picked up the baby, and within seven minutes, she's called 911 because the baby, something was really wrong with this baby.
0: So it was very important, this whole timeline that came out from you looking at different sorts, different parts of the record and uh, information gathering. And you had to fit it all yes. together like a puzzle. Correct. Well, tell us next what happens at the, what happens at the end of the trial.
1: <clears throat> so we, we all asked our questions of the, doc, this, the county's doctor, the doctor that had um, seen the baby on the second day, and, uh, and then the court asked questions as well. And once again, the court revisited the same questions he had asked our expert about the spinal injuries and pain and whether the baby would be exhibiting, um, you know, a reaction to pain. And she couldn't really, she couldn't, she couldn't answer it. She didn't know how to answer it because, you know, although she had this label as a child abuse expert, um, it wasn't specific to, that type of injury, so you've got this general label as a child abuse expert, yet she couldn't respond to this, these questions about that injury that is, you know, usually that's a part, an injury that appears when there's this kind of um, abusive head trauma, that's one of the uh, injuries, because when there's an acceleration, deceleration, deceleration injury that you know that comes with shaking, uh, there's spinal injury and but she had she couldn't she couldn't answer those questions. And so when the judge at first you know, so we all rested after we we ex- and said our closing arguments and it, it was interesting that, you know, the county did their closing, we did our closing, the fathers council did their closing, and then the minors counsel basically tried to explain away um, why the babysitter's story was inconsistent, that, oh, well, maybe she was just nervous. You know, and I just thought, God, don't you have, your, I mean, I couldn't help this, but I'm thinking, don't you have your client's best interest in mind? It isn't about, you know, the, the conclusion that you want. Isn't it about the facts and whatever conclusion is drawn from those facts? But it was clear. She had made up her mind long before any evidence was presented and was going to try to argue that evidence in a manner that supported her conclusion, regardless of what the truth was. And so she was the last person that said her closing. And so I was nervous and I was thinking, Oh God, is he just going to do like most of these judges do and rubber stamp the department? And he started off, you know, talking about, you know, what, you know, the sort of generally, okay, we have a mother and father and, you know, could they have caused these injuries? And then we have a babysitter, you know, could she have caused these injuries? And he said, "You know, I, I. What was really telling is when I spoke to, when I asked those questions to the ortho, the pediatric orthopedist, our expert. He said there was, it was clear that there was no way this baby could 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 have sustained could have sustained those injuries and not exhibited pain and crying and, and you know, and um, he said I find her him to be more credible. That's his specialty. He's been doing it." for God knows, you know, 20-something years. And um, I trust that, that what he said is, you know, is more accurate. And the, the quote-unquote child abuse expert could not even adequately answer the questions that the court had asked regarding um, the spinal injuries. And then he also stated that I don't agree with minors counsel that these inconsistencies can't be, you know, just a result of her being nervous about what had happened. I mean, he said it's so interesting, and I want to point out that the mother, mother's depiction of events when she dropped off the baby and the babysitter's um, depiction of events were the same. They're corroborated. Mother said the baby was normal when she dropped her off. And the babysitter said the baby was normal when she dropped her off. It's just the county that did not provide that piece of the puzzle. They left it out, but it was their own words we used in the trial to to prove that. It was in their words. It was in their notes. It was in, in their evidence. And they had that from day one. They had that from the first entry that yet it was left out of the reports offered to the court. And so he pointed that, that out. Yes. And he dismissed the case. He dismissed the case. It was like, I could, I mean, I, I couldn't believe it because it's it's so often, regardless of what the facts say, it's like the court, you know, puts their fingers in their ears and starts going la 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 la. They don't want to hear it. You know, and you think, you know, is this this going to be another rubber stamp? And, and it wasn't, he listened. And he heard the facts, and he heard what we had to present, and he made the correct ruling. For once, he made the correct ruling. Ruling. It was a, it was, it was an amazing moment. And, and my client, even before the judge could finish speaking, was, you know, cry, weeping with joy, and you know, grabbing me and hugging me. And the judge was still talking, but I couldn't help it. I'm tearing up, and, and my investigator who was sitting in the back of the courtroom, she's weeping. I mean, you know, everybody was so happy that, oh my God, there is still such thing as justice out there because it's a rarity. We see that in dependency court, you know, and, and it was, it was a really, really amazing moment.
0: How long had the child been out of the parents custody?
1: Um, since June, June 21st, mother dropped the the child at the babysitter and from that point. Yeah.
0: So almost six months had gone by since the parents had had their baby.
1: That's correct. And they could only see the baby, um, in a monitored setting. And... You know, it's right before Christmas and it was a really difficult time. And, and I know that the parents, you know, I mean, our first trial date was, was set for October, but I, you know, I had to tell the client, we don't have all the evidence yet. We need to wait. We need to wait. Because the client knows what happened and knows that when she dropped her baby off, her baby was fine. But we have to be able to present that to the court and we needed more evidence and I needed to ask her to wait. And she, she didn't really want to wait, but she trusted me reluctantly, but she didn't want to wait. But she, and in the end, obviously she was very happy with that, but it's really important, you know, and, and it's, I know it's probably hard for a parent to have to, I mean, I can't even imagine I'm a mother and, and to wait, you know, and be apart from my child for a longer period of time because we don't, you know, the, the attorney's asking for it and we don't have all the evidence it can be very frustrating, but it's, it was vital, 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 absolutely vital. And I'm was so happy in the end. That, and so was my client that she waited, you know, for obvious reasons.
0: So Rachel, tell our listeners, Give me a moral of this story. You won with Nicole, um, our co-counsel and with Amy, your investigator, you won a huge case where parents were accused of physically abusing a child through, you know, something called the shaken baby syndrome. Our listeners can Google that and you won. What's the moral of the story?
1: The moral of the story is I think is that we the parties involved, the, the, the attorneys and the social workers and you know, the medical personnel, they need to listen and they need to take the time to he to, to get all the facts so we can get an accurate picture that that this is that each case is an individual case, and w- w- this is not a machine, you know, where you know you get one case after the other and you rubber stamp and you take deals and you keep going. No, this you got to look at each case as it as it is as it comes forward and listen and and deal with the facts of that case and what occurred in that case appropriately. You can't, you know fall into this pattern or this habit of just treating all these cases of the same and, and just rubber stamping, you know, moving through the machine so that everybody can go home early or whatever. It's you got to look at each case and listen and, and be present and, and immerse yourself in the facts of each case take the time to immerse yourself in the facts and listen.
0: very good running out of time I want to thank you um, for being on the show with me this morning Um, we weren't able to take uh, listeners calls and there's you know probably 15 people in the queue right now waiting to come on I want to apologize to them and ask them to call in next week uh, with their stories and their questions, but I wanted I thought it was important for everyone to hear from you how Juvenile dependency court and you went to trial by doing a lot of work a lot of preparation a lot of discovery um, you, There's just no way around it So Rachel, thank you and congratulations to you and our co-counsel Nicole Williams who won this case for our client and For our office, it's a huge victory, and I really appreciate that. And for that appreciation, I have a new case for you. <laughs> it's a case in Los Angeles oh, no. County. It's a shaken baby. <laughs> the shaken baby syndrome. Case. <laughs> so we'll talk about that more on Tuesday. But thank you very much for okay. listening. And I want to tell the listeners, I want to tell our listeners that next Saturday um, we're going to be talking more about trials, and we're going to be talking about more. CPS and DCFS, and by the the way, Rachel, I've already talked to our client on the case that you just won, and we are going to be bringing a lawsuit against the county. So, I'll be talking to everyone next week. We'll see you on the radio.
1: Bye-bye. Thank you so much.